Welcome back to the Elise Yeezy show, second take. Uh, we have a slightly different one this time. We're doing a, a Zoom interview because my guest is Gloria Masters. She is from New Zealand. She is a child sex trafficking and abuse survivor and author. Hi, Gloria. How are you again? Hi, great. <laughs> great, Elise. We're doing it. <laughs> we love technology it's amazing I can speak to someone all the way in New Zealand but computer freaks out if you try and record <laughs> but we're there we're gonna make it happen yay thank you for having me on the show thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your eternal patience whilst we have technical difficulties um so a little bit about Gloria from the age of since you're born basically until 16 horrific abuse so viewer discretion is advised i'll be giving more of a i'll give a more disclaimer before the video actually starts we are going to be touching on some heavy subjects so yeah let's let's do this again so from a very early age you were abused by your father yes yes so yeah and uh from the time i was born until i was 16 and i no longer had to see him, um, but that was pretty much 16 years of horrendous um, child sexual abuse, trafficking, leased to gangs, um, rented out at sex parties, um, made over 100 videos where I was the star performer, uh, where adult men, women, and children were involved at times, um, got uh, prostituted out of a, a nightclub in Auckland Red Light District uh, between the age of 11 and 16, and had many abortions forced on me at my grandmother's hands. Um, so yes, very, very dark dreadful dreadful time in my young life so why speak about it now obviously I, I know why it's important to have your story out um but why now okay well that that's a really useful question so it took me decades to heal and recover from this and the final stage of healing is where you can start to give back. And three years ago, I began writing my first book, which is On Angel's Wings, My Flight from Trauma to Grace, which details what I went through. The reason I felt I could do it then was because I had healed enough to do it. But you know what my main purpose is? to actually help other child sexual abuse survivors um, by shining light on this topic um, through love and humility, actually. So that's my real purpose. And it's because it affects so many of us out there. And it's a silent endemic, not just here in Aotearoa, but out across the world. Yeah, we spoke about this briefly, but 
you have the statistics on how many people this issue affects so across the world. What are the statistics on child sexual abuse? So I've been told police in New Zealand tell me that they have a report that suggests up to one in three adults have experienced some form of child sexual abuse. So let's just digest that. One in three. And, and I'm just not talking women. I'm talking male mm. survivors, our beautiful male survivors out there who struggle so much and find it so hard to share their stories because of the huge shame attached. And it's just wrong, Elise. We need more focus given to this. We need more support and resource for our one and three. And that's why I'm standing up and sharing my story um, just so it can be a platform actually to expose uh, what child sex abuse is, is doing out across the world. Yes, because I suppose sexual abuse of all sorts, children and adults does go vastly unreported because of the shame yes. elements and yes. the guilt attached. So um, in, in your position, how did you start to get over the shame? Well, that's an interesting one. And I just want to talk about that for a minute. With child sexual abuse, adult survivors find it difficult to speak for three reasons. One, this will begin in secrecy. Mm-hmm. Two, it, the silence was ensured because of the threats made against us should we ever speak. And three, the shame then rendered us incapacitated and unable to speak. And we carry that shame. And to me, it takes the gold. It's just the most horrendous, um, big um, kind of weight, if you like, that we carry around on our shoulders. You know, the average age for... Um, CSA, Child Sexual Abuse Survivors to Speak Out is 52. So Elise, think about that. How many years of your adult life are wasted through carrying this trauma around um, through shame? Shame is what keeps us quiet. Yeah, and we saw that in England, especially with the Jimmy Savile case after he passed away. Uh, it came out, uh, well, hundreds of people came out and they would all be in their 40s and maybe 50s. Yes. Um, is the system, I know the answer for this, but is the system failing people? Because if it's affecting up to one in three people, child sexual abuse, is there not, not enough services in place to help with such a, because if there's 8 billion people on the planet, that's a lot of people being yes. abused. Is there just not enough manpower, police power, child support power? What's, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Look, and I think it's multifaceted. I think there's, there's many streams to this, but they all go end up down the path of shut up. Um, so what happens is survivors start to talk. Um, now, it's not uncommon then to feel shamed and re-traumatised because People don't want to hear this. Mm. Why don't they want to hear it? Because it's uncomfortable or depressing. But what they don't realize is when they're shutting us down because it's uncomfortable, 
we're giving the pedophiles a free pass uh, because it ensures the silence, secrecy and shame all over again. And I think we just need to find our voices, even if it's just a one person, and, and start to share. Because every time we do, we're handing the shame back to the abusers. Hmm. I'm just thinking again of the Jimmy Savile case. I'm wondering if the internet has helped people find their voices because before with with Savile in particular sorry it's fresh on my mind because there's new documentaries and stuff coming and the light coming out about him back then when people tried to go to the police they were ignored shut down or told that this isn't going to be able to get into court it's not going to go far but now we have the internet where people can talk on forums actually it's just came out in the um in the press recently that a famous DJ over here uh, has been accused of sexual misconduct and assault by lots of young women. And I'm wondering, is the internet helping people find their voices in this matter? Whereas before they could only go to the police and then if they were shut down, no one else is gonna hear it, apart from maybe that Savile's up to go good or other people are up to no good. So have you found that the internet has definitely helped with you? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. I think what happens is it's another forum for people. And I know doing podcasts like this, thank you, <laughs> um, it means you've got a, a fair percentage of your audience, actually, who have experienced something. Mm-hmm. And it gives them permission to think, yes, that's happened to me as well. And so that's what I like about this, because the more we share... Um, the more we can hand the shame back. And actually, I've created a podcast channel called Handing the Shame Back. Mm-hmm. And um, that's for survivors of child sexual abuse so that um, I interview them or have uplifting blogs on there for people so that they feel less alone and more supported because we, we really... You know, that this is having such a big impact um, in lots of ways. Um, so, you know, when you think about trauma and the impact, for instance, up to 50% of suicides in our country um, can be connected back to childhood trauma, which tends to um, contain child sexual abuse so think about that up to 50 percent can be connected to some form of childhood trauma so there's something Mm. another statistic uh, you would think that the war vets vietnam vets had by far the highest percentage of ptsd no 70 percent of post-traumatic stress disorder is found in CSA survivors. Is there a support system in New Zealand for this type of thing? Is there like social services or? Well, we we do have lots of people who are trying individually as I am to support and help. But one thing we do also have in New Zealand is we have what's called Accident Compensation Commission, ACC. Mm. And what they do is they provide counselling free counselling to um, 
survivors of this. So it's called the Sensitive Claims Unit. And I just love New Zealand for that. Thank you for that, New Zealand. Because you don't have to name who your abuser was. You don't have to um, get the funding to choose a counsellor um, on, on lots of details about it. It's taken as read that if you contact them and you need support, um, you can get an ACC registered counsellor and um, six sessions, I think, minimum are paid for. So that's pretty cool. I think the wider issue is that out among um, the average New Zealanders, they, they, it's not that they don't believe Elise, it's just they don't want to believe this goes on. Yeah, you hear that a lot. You do hear a lot of, oh, but surely, you know, this wouldn't happen or people would do that because you want to think that when you have uh, the police, most of which are, you know, profane people, you, you'd want to think you'd be able to go and speak to them if a crime happens. You'd want to believe that politicians who are elected by the people would be reliable on this type of thing. But as I was just saying to you before, we have a case in England of some MPs. Uh, reports came out that, there were one or two MPs who were engaging in this type of abuse, but the government made an official statement. This was several years ago. I remember Russell Brand speaking about this. That's where I got my news from. Uh, Russell Brand, this comedian in the UK turned like yes, an activist. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Th this report came out saying it's not in the public interest to know the names of these MPs, uh, and it will probably come out in 50 years' time where you know the people affected might not be alive anymore i'm wondering is is it a bit similar in new zealand yeah i guess um you know I, I would say that definitely high up in the um you know politicians police government this sort of thing goes on um and there's almost like a green light for it too and i'll tell you why because we have We've had some statewide commissions held into, um, you know, Lake Ellis, which is uh, which was a home for wayward children. They called them back in the day, and these children were just um, repetitively um, abused and tortured by the state carers. And these were Catholic brothers and nuns and all sorts involved. So. You know, I think at the end of the day, it, there's a little bit of a myth out there that um, it doesn't happen at our highest levels. Yes, it does. Mm. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't mean every person at a high level is behaving in this way. But it does mean that, as you've found over there, um, there are MPs who, what, they can abuse children and, and they get away with it. What does that tell you? I mean, with our very own royal family, all of the, I have to say for legal reasons, but I'm going to set of an eye roll, the allegations surrounding Prince, the accusations and allegations surrounding Prince Andrew, one of the most elite uh, positions of power you can be in in the UK. The royal family still hold like the power of veto, I believe. And they're very much... Um, they don't hold as much power as they used to, but it's the most privileged position you can be in to be born into the royal family in England anyway. And so when you have at least one member of the family going around doing that, and then you start to connect the dots and you see 
Epstein, friends of many of the rich and famous, had his own island where unspeakable trauma was happening to lots of children. Oh, yeah. Pedo it's, Island, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, isn't it? And then uh, it's quite unfathomable, but we can see all this stuff in, in the mainstream media and the news and people still want to think, oh, but it, surely it can't really be happening. You know, it's very... Um, yeah, it's really sad. It, it's really sad. And there's 12 million reasons why uh, Prince Andrew never got to court because um, I converted what was paid out to um to you know your currency but but you know the point being think about it this way if a child has been abused they will be acting out in some way mm -hmm. what happens when they're ignored or shamed or put down or or told to behave is they then become seen as the difficult one so that no one ever asks what happened to you you okay what's going on it's just a discipline or a decision made to put that child or teenager into a box of oh she or he's always been difficult but actually <laughs> that's why they're not taken seriously but the point is we should be rewinding the tape and going back to what's happened to you yeah, did you find that? Because for you, it started in family, the abuse of yeah. your father. Yes, um, yes. Did you find that? Did, did you go to, I guess, preschool, kindergarten, like, you know, when you're five, six years old? Did you? Did you oh, we went to school at age five. Yeah, that's uh, when we started in New Zealand. Yeah. And did you, were you acting out at that age? Due to out, of, out of control at school. Why? Because school was my only safe place. Mm -hmm. They couldn't hurt me there. So I was free to release and I had to release somehow. Um, but no one ever asked what's going on. Um, no, and just, that was, yeah. Yeah, if you get labelled as a problem child, then it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because again, yeah. not, to, not to bang on about Savile, but uh, he had access to, I think it's called the Duncroft School for Girls. And it was uh, like misbehaving girls. So they're sent off to a private boarding school um where then the cycle of abuse continues because abusers will do that won't they they'll they'll go for children or people that seem vulnerable and who won't who'll be easier to isolate so they can't talk to others and if they do talk to others they're not going to be taken seriously because oh well you've always been in trouble you've always been an attention seeker all this type of rhetoric so you can see how the cycle continues but if we took that right back to why is the child needing to be placed in that home, if the question was asked of the child or parents who cared about that child, there might have been some different outcomes. And I think we have to have a bit of a do-over, actually, in how we, we decide on um, whether someone's being naughty or whether actually it's a cry for help. Because children who are being abused will never speak. It's too hard for them. There's too many threats made. Um, and it's such a, a shameful thing to, um, to carry. Uh, and I, I think, too, and you and I had talked about this earlier, Elise, the reason we stay quiet is because it starts in secrecy. Mm -hmm. The whole act starts in secrecy then uh, silence renders us just afraid to speak 
um, because of the threats. And they may not be made against us, but if we speak, your dog will be killed or your sister or your mother, you know, that sort of stuff. And as small children, we believe that, don't we? Or even as teenagers, we believe that. And then the shame is what keeps us silent and quiet for so long. Yeah, and I've, I've also seen examples of people's life experiences where if they were being abused by a primary caregiver the threat was more of a I don't want to it like it didn't come from a from this place of oh violence will happen it came from a place of but if you tell people this is our little secret and I do this because I love you yes you know if you tell people then I'll be taken away and the child at that point might have some sort of stop well I don't know it's normal for children to be very attached to their primary caregivers anyway you know Um, but for you yeah, no that was never the case with me because yeah. I wasn't loved I was seen as an object and um, I never once in all my childhood adolescence never once did my father reach out to discuss anything about life with me or mm-hmm. give me any guidance or or protection or interest or you know show me how to be the best child I could be um, all he ever talked about or, or chose to do was to traffic me and sell me out and so it's really hard to have a good sense of self because as a small girl it's it's not until we're eight years old that our self-esteem is formed but you daughters and small girls see themselves through their daddy's eyes and so, you know, how, how could there be self-love or self-esteem? Yeah, and your mother was also very vacant, wasn't she? She wasn't, she was very absent. Yeah. So- and, you know, abandonment is, is a term I would use. And I, I was just uh, in her way. If you said to me, how did I feel growing up around my mother? I just always felt in the way. I was a nuisance. And no one ever saw the joy in me or the light in me or the you know, the fun in me, it was just, yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking if, you know, from one caregiver, you're just getting horrific abuse and the other is gone, so you've got abandonment. Um, Yeah. You you must have never experienced, like, physical affection, like, you know, just just a hug. And I'm wondering, how did that affect you uh, becoming an adult? I know that uh, we spoke about this previously, that you, you your brain as a way to protect itself repressed disassociated from the memories of childhood um but did you find as a as an adult how did that affect you uh the fact that i was never physically loved you yeah know, yeah or, because yeah. it's um because it, it's, it's it's important for, like for, for children to because it's a comfort thing for starters yes. like you know of course it is so so um there was a family dog um that, that we had so that dog got loved to bits um, and yes there were no safe adults ever in my life um, up until the age of 16 there was no one I could trust so I had to do what I needed to but before I get to that let's talk about what you mentioned which is that dissociation yeah and I think we likened it um, what CSA child sexual abuse survivors do is we dissociate, which we leave our bodies, and we do that, Elise, to keep us safe because our mind can't comprehend and wants to protect. 
so um, in my case, I dissociated for most of those 16 years. It's like um, for a person who hasn't experienced childhood trauma, having a bad car accident, you won't be able to remember that accident for a while because your mind is protecting you um, from the impact of it, the psychological impact as much as anything. So if you imagine 16 years of horrendous psychological torture, um, physical attacks, um, beaten, kicked, tied up, you know, just horrendous things, as well as the awful sexual abuse, um, what happened is my mind couldn't deal. So it suppressed those memories so well that it was not until I was a mum and 32 years of age that the memory started to come flooding back um, and look I'm grateful that happened mm -hmm. um, because I think I would have gone crazy had I actually had full recall um, at that time so what age were you when the trafficking began Right. So from the time I was uh, four and a half, when I was first um, abused uh, or penetrated by my father, I was then um, kind of pumped out to his extended family. Um, but it was from that age that my grandmother, his, his mother and one of his sisters got were designated to train me into being the best child prostitute I could be. And that's abhorrent as a term, but uh, I don't know what else to call it because that's what it was. Mm -hmm. and, and so from the age of six, I was then trafficked out to people who were um, paying a lot of money to do that to me. And... One of the places that the trafficking took place was out of my grandmother's house. Mm. Um, and her and my auntie, I would see them, my father, giving them money. So they got a commission for training me so well. And as I began to grow older, um, they included more acts, so more sinister things began to happen within that trafficking and if you don't mind saying what what was your worst experience okay so my worst experience was at the age of 11 so my parents had split up and I was living in my father's house um, so my mother had taken the other girls and gone and I was left with him and he, there were then no barriers to any torture or anything he wanted me to do um, and nearly died a few times. And the worst when I thought I would die was he trafficked me out to a gang for an initiation weekend. So in New Zealand at the time, we had three gangs um, and this one still operates today. And what they did to me as an 11-year-old was... They, um, they tied me up, so my hands and feet were tied on, on the block, they call it. 
and these uh, gang members could do whatever they wanted to me. Um, so what I hadn't factored in and um, I nearly died was the brutality because it wasn't just the sexual attack and, and all of that. It was also they were beating me. I was so pulverized, Elise, that my face was unrecognizable. I became unconscious. Um, and I was so badly beaten that when my father came on the Sunday to get me, he turned to the gang leader. And do you know what he said to him? Oh, she looks terrible. Oh, you probably don't want to do too much of that, mate, because she won't look that good for you anymore. So that's the type of horror that I went through. My father then took me back to my grandmother's house. My whole face was swollen. My eyes were, were shut with the bruising, uh, broken ribs. I, I couldn't walk. And I had to stay off school for weeks. Um, it was one of the only times he got a doctor into my grandmother's house. And the doctor happened to be part of the gentleman's club that I had been trafficked to. And this is, this is quite a big conglomerate across the world. Mm -hmm. This is uh, quite a big entity with... Um, pedophilia and rings um, that do a lot of this child sexual abuse and a lot of the um, ritualistic stuff. Mm -hmm. So I recognized this doctor's voice. I couldn't see. Um, I was so badly beaten, but I, I couldn't see. But I recognized his voice because he was the same doctor that would drug us children when we were trafficked to that group periodically um, so yeah that was the absolute worst time of my life I'll never forget it that was just the fear these were big big men um, mm. but anyway I survived it but yeah I have, yeah I have several I have several different questions I don't really know where to begin firstly how can a father dehumanize their child to such an extent they're just seeing them as a waiter, like a, a toy that makes them profit? How, what was, what, not to armchair psychoanalyze or anything, but what was going on there with your father? I mean, he sounds like a psychopath. Right. So you've got it um, completely right. What um, viewers need to keep in mind is this. When you are seen as an object, you therefore don't have, um, you're not seen, valued, loved, or treated as a child. I was purely an object to him. You're absolutely right. He was a grade A psychopath, um, and he was a cruel, cruel one. Mm. So he didn't have love for me or towards me. I was purely there to make him big amounts of money. All that was important to him was notoriety and hierarchy through the groups and gangs he trafficked me to. It's all he wanted was money and attention. 
Is someone like that capable of feeling love for anyone? Or no, I because you can't compartmentalize something that awful. I remember one act of kindness in all the years I uh, those 16 years. Once I turned 16 and I never had to see him again, I never willingly did. Right. But there was one act of kindness, um, and it was one one night, and I remember he tucked my feet up because my feet were cold. That's the only thing I remember that was ever kind. Um, but, you know, th that was by far the worst time in my life. I attempted to take my own life three times during the 18-month period I was left in that house with him. Um, when you were 11 to 12, which is that... 12 and a half. Yeah, yeah. That, that to me, it's... Um... I don't think I even knew the concept of ending one's life when I was 11 years old. I don't, I don't think I actually knew or understood that as a concept. So that you tried three, three times is yeah. horrific. You're a very resilient person. You've got a very strong core to go well, through all of that and now, now speak out yeah, about it. Yeah. Well, look, I, and I also think I'm, I'm very grateful because I, I always had a light in me and I, I always had a belief that I needed to just put one foot in front of the other. But the big gift to me was I had angels around me mm. and um, I could feel them and sense them and talk to them. And, um, you know, I still do today. And it's why my book is called On Angels' Wings um, because they got me through. and. Yeah. Can we speak a little bit about the gangs? Would it be fair to call some of them cults? Because if you're engaging in this type of behavior, it's rather cultish. And this doctor was a member of this particular, shall we say cult? I feel like that is a good word for. Yeah. Uh, look, I, and, and that doctor was not just a member of um, that big big entity in New Zealand I call it a gentleman's club mm -hmm. um, because they're global and they're huge and they do a lot of trafficking and, and ritualistic abuse of children um, throughout the world and they're known for it actually but what people don't realize is they're infiltrated by people high up in our um, legal political police government systems which is why they they get free passes when it comes to behavior like this. Um, and, you know, yes, there was that connection. The, the gangs or cult were definitely infiltrated by this group or were there was some kind of control that went on. But so was the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. And that's, um, that's where it became a bit of a breeding ground, actually, for some of these groups and members yeah and you said that some of these experiences were ritualistic in nature yes can you possibly yeah. explain more, more yeah about the, the ritual side of things what what was yeah so there? so yeah so satanic um abuse and look i go into it in the book but not uh, not everything that happened because um you know i i don't need to um, but 
there were there was a certain protocol and there was definitely a hierarchy with this uh, satanic ritual stuff and what would happen was we the children would be taken to a particular dwelling and um there would be we would be lined up and and we would be checked out by a nurse um and then we would be drugged by the doctor that I mentioned earlier. And then we would be led into the main um, ceremonial room and we would be laid out in a circle. So it was all raised platforms and, and things, but there was a, a very much a, a structured um, look to this. And then the chanting would begin and these men would come and wearing hoods and specific masks and things. And so the chanting would get louder and louder and they would start to abuse. Um, the person who was in charge of them all got the first pick and then um, they would rotate but the, the interesting thing is it didn't just stay at that. So there were animals and other living things sacrificed as well. And um, I don't want to horrify your viewers, um, but, you know, blood being smeared and drunk and just horror. Very sat satanistic. Um, yeah, so look, I don't want your channel to be taken down. No, no, no. Uh, no, yeah. no it, it's fine. Um, and people struggle with this, but it still goes on today, Elise. It still goes on today. Yeah, we've had thousands of years of this this type of, I mean, especially bloodletting in like the eyes of a sacrificial offering, some sort of God yeah. that's yeah. happened around the world for, for lots of years. So I don't think it's so far-fetched to believe that there would be remnants of this within yes. certain groups, especially if certain groups, I, d I don't know, are obsessed with certain ideas or want to chase after certain uh, things. Do you, I mean, this is going to be a difficult question to answer, but you, do you know roughly how many of these men would engage in this behavior like how big the group would be well yeah so look there could be up to um 40 but there were chapters throughout the country and then periodically they would get together so may day was a big one first of may was a big one um and and then it would be out in the country somewhere it would be taken out in the country um, and police cars would line that driveway. But th the point is that, just to be really clear, this organisation is, um, is infiltrated with these animals, if you like, but they have to get to a certain level within the hierarchy before all of this pedophilia and, and abuse starts. So there are some really good um, men out there who possibly have joined this group and they feel like they're doing good in the community and they will be. They just don't know what's happening above them. So, 
Yeah, it's almost, yeah. not almost like, but it, a, a parallel, I suppose, is you have um, Scientology. I don't want to mention Scientologists too much, though, because they get very, uh, they, they like Absolutely. to just follow people around. Yeah. But, you know, the first few levels, it's very much a self-help group and you yeah. do self-help courses and yeah. like to better yourself. And it's only after you get to level five, you start to learn about the um, the more interesting esoteric stuff. Yeah. So yeah. how old were you when um, you were being trafficked out to am I right in saying strip clubs yeah so the strip club there was just one it was up in K Road so that's where our red light district mainly was back then um, and there were a couple of nightclubs and they were just um, like big houses with three stories say um, but the um, I was taken there at age 11 and started being trafficked out of their out of their top one of their top rooms. So I wasn't seen by the general oh. public. Um, but the other female um, prostitute or sex workers knew what was going on and were horrified. And uh, the transvestites that were there knew as well. Um, but the yeah, it was that was eleven. But prior to that, we would be taken there and have to some of the video the filming happened well before I was 11 and went right up till I was 16 so that was a place where some of the filming took took place as well so the other the um the adult sex workers they were aware what was going on uh but they they couldn't do anything they couldn't they they were trapped and look they were lovely they were lovely to me and they tried to look after me as much as they could and yeah hated my father hated him sounds um, like that might but, be the first place where you're outwardly shown affection by adults trying to yeah. look out for you which is yeah it's it's mind-boggling really and you're in how many pornographic films was it? Pro- probably over a hundred but they weren't what you think now with a little video camera or digital devices with big old um, projector screens, with the big, big um, and brown leather cases and they had the big round wheels. I used to focus on the sound of, of that whirring as, um, as the filming was happening. Um, so, and, and lots of photographs were taken as well, but yeah, the, the police couldn't find the films here um, but but they know they're there. They just don't know where. And it's so long ago now. Um, yeah. I guess I'm just here to say to all our fabulous survivors out there, look, there is hope. Um, there is hope. And you're not alone. And um, you're believed and supported. I stand beside you. So I just want to give people hope. Um, I I got through. It's a miracle I'm here. I'm so grateful I made it through. That you guys can too. So when you were 16 and you weren't yeah. legally obligated to see your father, because you did go and live with um, your your mother for a, for a while, didn't you? But then you had to go see him. Was it once every two weeks? Like you had. Yeah. To? So that's a story. The is that worth um, telling about? how I escaped from my father's custody full-time. Yeah, yeah, so I'd been in my father's house 18 months and um, came home from school one day and I could hear sounds coming from down the hallway. 
and I could hear a woman laughing. And I went down and there was my father in bed with a woman and I just panicked because I'd been conditioned to be his sex slave. Mm -hmm. So it, it just threw me. And anyway, I picked up my bag and ran and I ran all the way up to my mother's house. And for the first time, something must have showed in my face because she asked me what had happened. And I told her. And so then she rang, she was friends with the Archbishop of Auckland at the time. Um, she rang the lawyer and um, they said the best words I'd ever heard in my life, get her out of that house. It's not safe for her to be living there with an adulterer. Yeah, like that's the main issue. <laughs> Fine for me to be trafficked sold, abused, neglected, tortured, um, but not to be with an abuser. Anyway, I was so relieved. I just cried and cried. But then she made me go back and tell him by myself that I didn't want to live with him anymore. She wouldn't even come with me. So I had to face him by myself. How did he and take that? Oh, he said, you'll pay for this. You're making a big mistake. Um, but the point being, I was so traumatized at having to face him. And then I walked out and her car was parked on the road and I went out and I went back to her place and I was so excited that oh, it's over, I can finally live with you. And, and she turned to me and she said, no, you have to go back every second weekend. Why, why was that? Why did he get custody of every second weekend? Why did that happen? No, she, she didn't want me, to be fair. She didn't want me. Bullshit that the archbishop and the lawyer said that. I don't believe that for a moment. This was self-interest. So going back every fortnight for two days nearly broke me because I had 12 safe days right? I could sleep safely. I was left alone. It was so such a relief. But I had to prepare myself to go back into all the trafficking and abuse. And he made sure I, I worked hard. Um, so interestingly, all the people that he trafficked me to and all the money he made out of me and all the things these other men did to me they were nothing compared to what my father did to me um so he, he was so deranged and evil it was fun for him to strip me naked uh, put a dog collar around my neck walk me around on all fours and I could only eat food or have water out of like a dog bowl and tie me up outside on the back deck and at one stage um, I wasn't allowed to speak I could only communicate through what a dog would do so to me that psychological torch and damage was almost worse than anything physical and was your mother aware of the 
sexual abuse but didn't care well or... i would say i look i have no idea i i think so um you you would have to have been um a deaf dumb and blind not to realize these are really seriously traumatized kid here every time she saw me i would have lost more weight mm -hmm. i mean my father deliberately starved me because the pedophiles would pay more money if i was really thin because it's, then it made me look younger, you see. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking that, like a yeah. infantilization. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, I don't think she cared enough. I don't think my mother ever loved me either. She was what I consider a complex narcissist. So her world was about her. And what I quickly learned to do in the end was to develop um, a false self for both parents and I became the caregiver because I worked out if I could look after my mother and feed you know feed her needs or fill her needs she might notice me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sometimes I get nice words said to me but that's what I had to do as a child to get any positive attention so, again, pretty pretty amazing to have made it through. And how would your false self be with your father? Was it about, okay, well, if I just, you know, serve his, in quotations, needs, maybe, yeah. maybe he won't be as hard on me. Maybe he won't hurt me so much. 100%. So I pretended I loved all the abuse and all the attacks I would try and preempt some stuff and what happened was in my childlike mind that works because sometimes it did mm -hmm. and uh, he would start he would sometimes be a bit kinder now when I say kinder that would mean if I was in his presence I could never eat until he had eaten everything he wanted to, and I got the scraps. So I was treated like an animal, really. Um, and as I say, that was the worst. But the false self and the caregiver in me, I had to survive. I had to survive. So I just adapted who I was to, um, to, to keep breathing, actually, <laughs> to keep going. Yeah, and where does that ultimately leave you? Because you're this age, you've got these two false selves just to survive. Where would yes. that, where would that, you, you wouldn't, I mean, it's not like many kids like know who they truly are and they're little kids anyway, but if you're having to act out all these roles, when you're by yourself, what, what's that feeling like? Disaster. Absolute disaster. And I developed it in, and worked on it and perfected it so highly. I was so, so highly skilled at this that that was the hardest thing for me. I didn't turn to drugs or, or alcohol as a lot of my fellow survivors have needed to. What I had to do, my biggest trauma was trying to work out who, who was I, who am I? Who is the real me? Because I'd perfected this. Mm. So it took me decades, actually, to finally understand 
this is who I am, not that false person. I couldn't cry for years. I, I was a lot older before I cried. What because, you... yeah. Sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, no, just because I had to survive. So I had to put on the smile and be all things to all people. So this highly developed false self became me. And if you like, I then wasn't being the real me. I was being a version of me. And what helped keep you away from drugs and alcohol? Because like you say, so many victims of these experiences will turn to drugs and alcohol later on uh, to escape from the yeah. memories. What, um, how did you stay away from that outlet? Okay, well, my, my biggest trauma was the falseness. So for them, their biggest trauma may have been trying to deal with it was to go to the drugs. My dealing with it was to try and sort out who the false self was. And I couldn't go to drugs because from a very young age, I was pumped full of barbiturates, hallucinogenics, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you want to know the reason for that? Because no one wanted to waste money on a traumatized and frightened child. <laughs> so you sedate the child and they're easier to quote unquote work with. Yeah, that's the only reason. But I got scared because you can imagine hallucinogenics in a very emaciated small body. Um, I, can't imagine. I, w- I can't imagine. Oh, I, even- I, I remember waking up one night. It's still vivid. I, 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 it was between the ages of 11 and 12 and a half um, living at my father's house. And I woke up one night and I swear to you, I looked at my arms and I had worms crawling out of them and I was terrified. And I thought, what can I do? Who can I go to? And the answer was a resounding, no one. And I think in a way that saved me from going down the, the drug scene because I was too scared. It really affected me. Um, yeah, and yeah. I suppose like almost counterproductively, like the drugs and alcohol and the feelings of being high or drunk would just remind you of the previous experiences. So it probably would have even yeah. served its function as it triggered. Yeah. 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 Don't get me wrong. I like to have a few wines, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not heavy barbiturates or, or anything else. I just, uh, I just couldn't do it. It was just too traumatic for me. Hey, and I just want to make a comment in case anyone out there feels offended. Whatever you wonderful survivors out there have had to do to get through, whether it's been drugs or alcohol, you know what? applaud yourselves because it was your way of coping and I just honor what whatever you had to do I get it oh yeah there's no judgment here for anyone that has still uses yeah Um, it's just a nightmare and it's such a silent endemic the silent the power of the silence um just is is so huge um, because of the shame and and I just yeah would just love love to offer to our survivors you know there's hope out there you're never alone we've got to hand the shame back Elise we've got to hand it back yeah 
So you're 16 when you got away from him. You never had to see yeah. him again. What was your life like after that point? Did you, um, but were you still in, were you still in school? Did you get to finish school and go on to college? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, teenage years were a blur really. Um, I, you know, uh, I attracted my, started dating my first husband when I was 19 and um, of course, you know, as survivors do, we if if it's um, within a family, so if it's incest, you um, you develop a way of being or, or a template. And as I said to you earlier, I think that for a, a girl, a young girl, we see ourselves through our daddy's eyes. There's poems about this and literature on this. So a girl's self-esteem is formed through how her father sees her. So does that give you any indication as to how I saw myself? Mm. Um, I was never going to attract uh, relationships to me where I was held in the high esteem I should have been or valued or respected. Now, that's not the fault of, you know, my husband. That is just I couldn't. I couldn't have a healthy relationship. Of course, I couldn't. Um, what did what did that relationship uh, look like then? Well, um, yeah, very, you know, dysfunctional. Mm. Uh, me keeping as busy and and um, occupied as I could, so I didn't have to think because I hadn't had any recall at that stage. All I knew was I had to keep moving, had to keep busy, had to keep doing things because then my mind couldn't rest and therefore nothing could emerge within me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't good for me. And, and um, yeah, I, I don't really want to be disrespectful about, um, you know, um, my ex-husband. It just, it didn't work. And, mm. and that was, you know, I have to take my share of that responsibility. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you weren't taught yeah. uh, what a healthy relationship looks relationship like. Relationship so, was. Yeah, how can you? Uh, no. And a lot of relationships, like your first, your first ones anyway, are this learning curve and process of working out boundaries with someone else. Um, so a lot of people's first ones can't. Like I, I certainly know that my younger relationships were a bit dysfunctional because you're having to you're suddenly in close proximity with someone. You have to learn how to yeah. how to how to <laughs> sure. navigate that. So it's um it's a bit yeah. dysfunctional at the best of times. Uh, yeah. But coming from your background, it must have been difficult. Well, it was, and uh, of course I wasn't going to be able to be. Um, I wasn't my real self mm. either. So it was always a bit of a show. Um, yeah, it's taken me years to, to be who I am and, and actually love who I am, which is something survivors can struggle with as well. So, yeah, look, the, and the whole purpose for this, you know, is I really, really want to... Um, to help other survivors out there by showing there's a way. And, uh, you know, I've written that first book and it's a traumatic read, just mm-hmm. attention viewers, it's traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also working on my second book at the moment, which is a guide for um, 
CSA survivors. So I've got an idea of, of what it takes to get through. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do. And am I right that you were 32 when you first had your first child? Uh, no, I was 27 when I had my first child. Um, um, but she was uh, six years old when the memories started coming. So when the memories come back, how do you, um, do they come back in drips and drabs, like a bit at a time? Was it this influx? Do you know even what might have triggered the memories coming back in the first place? Yeah, well, that's a really good good question, actually, because for um, for survivors globally, we have things called flashbacks and we have triggers and we have dissociation and we have hypervigilance and we have a, a whole raft of things that are known to us and we never have to explain it because we all get it. But the point is with triggers, um, you know, it could be standing in a certain part of a room and um, just hearing a sound and instantly you're triggered um, by that sound because it might remind you of something that happened uh, when you're a child. Um, and flashbacks are when you see a situation in your head repeat replay itself um but yeah all, all of that and I was trying to raise two small children alone at the time um and so that was that was another real challenge for me trying to deal with all the memories um you can imagine 16 years of them was there that, when it first happened was there almost um was there a bit of denial like well, there where, was, the, yeah, 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 absolutely. And then they they started recurring and coming more and more. And, and I thought, look, there's something going on here. So I went and saw a therapist and, and started speaking and out they all came. So as I say, it took me decades and lots of healing modalities and still um, go to therapy um, as I can or when I need to um, but I feel um, hand on heart touch wood that um, I'm I'm pretty well there I'm, I'm healed enough to talk uh, openly and and confidently about it so did writing your book help well it was a, it was a few things it was a, it was so triggering and traumatic mm. it was horrible um, in one sense, but it was so cathartic in another sense. And, uh, yeah, really, really good. Really good to release it all out of me, but, yeah, pretty tough. I remember one day I was, I thought, right, I'm doing some research for the book and I'd started writing. So I drove to my old house, my old father's house, where I used to live with my father. And I I parked outside and I drove, I walked around the area, walked through my old school grounds. Well, big mistake. What a wreck. I was heaving. I was crying so much. I was just distraught mm. because, of course, I was retracing those steps. So that don't. Don't do that, viewers. <laughs> don't don't do that. It was uh, it was a big um, 
yeah, it was it was horrible. And I and I rang my therapist, and she said, "What what are you doing?" And I went, "I'm walking around the area." And she went, "Never do that again by yourself. I'll come with you." Um, but look, you know, you I I have to see the humor and things because that's who I am. But yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, when it's your own lived experience, like you can, uh, you can react how you want. Because a lot of us find humor can help. You know, like there's this yeah. thing, rather, I'd rather laugh at a situation than cry at a situation. Yeah. Uh, for example, when so, how long has your book been out? So the book came out a year ago, actually, um, May 2021. Have any New Zealand officials, police, social workers, politicians, have any of them uh, been made aware of the book? Has anyone contacted you about this? Because it's a, well, it's a horrific case. So it's within the public's interest to know that this type of stuff goes on. Has there been any contact from um, authoritative figures regarding it? Zero interest from any of them. Um, no one would publish my book, so I self-published. No one was interested. I've reached out to media multiple times, no interest. Um, initially, when I published the book, there was one uh, lovely guy called Steve who works uh, for a local, oh, for a, a national paper, and he interviewed me. Um, but it was pretty traumatic for him actually interviewing me. Mm. <laughs> when we sat down, he said, I've read the book and I, I just don't have any words. <laughs> but um, he was he was lovely to deal with. But yes, apart from him, no, no interest. Interestingly, people like yourself and people in the UK and the States are very interested in my story. Um, people in New Zealand, not so much. Why is that? Did um did New Zealand have their own version of the Me Too movement? Because I feel like yeah, that was a bit of a of turning point uh, for us because then these things started getting more attention and people started being more open and talking about uh, this type of thing when the Me Too movement happened. And now, well, like, I, like I said, I don't know if I said it in this recording or the other one, um, <laughs> the, the DJ, uh, the very famous DJ in the UK that's come out recently, I mean, that's been... It, that's been picked up by lots of different papers whereas maybe 20 years ago it wouldn't have been so why is it that in New Zealand there's not been interest um well I get told things like people don't want to hear it people don't don't want to hear a story like that mm. so my response is always that's fine but two things one it's true mm -hmm. and two it still goes on. <laughs> so um, I can't make them show interest. I, in New Zealand, we have this, this, um, this thing we do where people can be really talented here or quite skilled in a particular way or, you know, have a, a story like mine, which is highly unusual. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is not notice it or not be interested until it gets overseas and once it starts gaining traction, she's ours or he's ours, and then suddenly there's interest. But I think that's a shame because to me that sort of re uh, but, yeah, replicates a bit 
the silence or the conservativeness or people don't want to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable. But I don't need to tell my story in graphic detail, Elise. All I'm trying to do is shed light on our one in three survivors out there. And, um, you know, the, I'm talking men as well as women. And I just want to say as well that women don't get a free pass here. There are women, women abusers as well. We have a lot of fabulous men in our country who have experienced child sexual abuse at the hands of a woman. Um, and I think we need to start normalising that conversation as well because it's really hard for them to come forward because there's jokes made about it mm. or, um, no, that can't be true, or mothers don't do that. And I think really if, if we're going to stand united and stand beside each other in this, we need to offer our, our male survivors support, belief, encouragement, and, um, you know, I hear you. Yeah, there's also, there's also that stereotype of, well, you know, men, they're always thinking about sex and their sex craze. There's no way if a man was offered sex, it could be deemed as assault. You know, there's this like that awful stereotype that permeates a lot of media and culture. Like, oh, you know, men are just happy to like get like this expression that's coming to mind. So I don't know why is get their rocks off at any given opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it's simply yeah. not. It's not the case. No, I mean, I've I've spoken to a wonderful man who shared with me that he was 15 years old and um, abused by a female teacher. And um, he said, Gloria, you're the first person I've ever told. Why? Because people would make fun of it. Mm. People think, oh, you're lucky thing. Yeah. And no, not lucky. Traumatised him for the rest of his life. So I think we need that myth blown apart, actually. Mm. And, um, you know, yeah, we, we're all surviving and it was never, never your fault, ever, mm. ever, just never. So, Gloria, you have your podcast channel. for Handing the shame back. Yep, for um, speaking to other survivors. Yes. Which is excellent. And you have your book on Angel's Wings. My Flight from Trauma to Grace. I've got it here, but I can send you the links anyway. Yeah, when, where can people buy that? So your side of the world, probably best on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, over summer, did the Audible version. So it's in paperback, Kindle and Audible. Um, people seem to like the sound of my voice for some reason. <laughs> it's your accent. I, I like your, I like the, uh, the, the Kiwi, um, Kiwi and Australian Kiwi. accents. I like that. But I'll tell you what, that triggered me. Uh, doing the audible version was tough actually really? I found that yeah yeah because I've never read it out loud in a in it's a production different. studio yeah, yeah. It, it's it, different when you're when you're when you're saying things as opposed to when you're um writing and the thing is the poor producer in the studio so I'm in the studio the headphones on doing the the book and he's sitting there doing all the graphics and all the things that need to happen with it and I could see him through the glass when I tense and flinch and 
and a, a poor guy. I think he was in shock. Um, but yeah, so the book's been written. It is a traumatic read. The second book's on its way, team, um, trying to write it, um, you know, as a guide. It's Flight Path to Healing Guide for CSA Survivors. And the um, Hand in the Shame Back is that channel for if any of your viewers would like to be interviewed by me. I'm very gentle and soft. You won't uh, be traumatized. And I offer you this. Yeah. If we do the interview and for any reason you feel uncomfortable, I will treat it as my honor to have had a conversation. It will never see the light of day. Why? Because as children, we never had the choice. As adults, I want to give you the choice. So, so that's that one. And yeah, so I do write lots of blogs as well. Um, they're on my website, um, gloriamasters.com. And I will keep doing this work till the day I die because, you know, it's time to give back. No, I commend you for it. Thank you so much for coming on to my channel and sharing your stories. Uh, I, I know you're at a place where, where you can talk about it, but it, it mustn't yeah. be easy. It, it can't be easy to... Have to, but it's very important. It's very important to be able to talk about this stuff so people feel that uh, they're not alone. Yeah. And that they can they can relate. Yeah. As horrible as it is to relate to something like this, it's important yeah. that people know that others have experienced it and managed to grow. Yeah. So we can get through it, guys. It's um, It's a journey, but I promise you it's worth it. Um, so don't give up, never alone. Yes, thank you so much for coming to my channel. And everyone, thank I will you. link everything that Gloria has said, her website and her books in the description below, so you can go check that out. Thank you guys for watching this video along with us. Um, make sure you comment, like, subscribe, all of that typical YouTuber stuff. Follow us on Spotify and iTunes, and I'll be back again sometime soon. So thank you awesome. very much. Bye.